Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. This is a threshing, a threshing fork. This is Al Lawson's. Isn't that cool? I've had it in my office for a couple of weeks because I'm going to preach on this this morning. But that's just kind of a guy thing, you know. I've got a spear in the corner of my office, and uh, it's just cool, you know, a guy thing. And I use it in counseling. I get a lot of answers. So this, this is going to help. All right, if you would turn with me real quick to Luke chapter 3. I want to jump right in it. While you're looking there, Luke chapter 3, uh, did want to mention two things. The upcoming conference, uh, the, the, uh, Her Voice, is it Her Voice? Her Voice Conference. A lot of people are, a lot of people just think that's a women's conference. It's not. It's uh, for men and women. Want to encourage you men to come out to this conference. Uh, they're going to have some different speakers. And uh, it's from the organization, not, uh, don't uh, think, what's it? Not our kids? Don't mess with our kids. There you go. And uh, if you have been uh, staying up to date on current events, you know why, we're, why it's named that. And so I want to encourage you to come out. Uh, also, somebody lost an earring, I found. And uh, it just didn't look good on me. So you can have it back if this is yours. I don't think it's got any diamonds or anything on it. Well, it does have some gems. But anyway, if that's yours, you can come find me. All right, let's jump into the word. Luke chapter 3. Uh, why don't you look with me at... Uh, Luke chapter 3, if I can get my computer to cooperate here. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. We are in a series on foundational truths. We've been looking at Hebrews chapter 6. Let us not lay again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, instructions and baptisms, a laying on of hands, uh, uh, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgments. And we've been looking at them in pairs because there's really three pairs that each go with each other. We looked at repentance and faith. You can find that on the podcast. We've looked at instructions and baptisms and the laying on of hands. Uh, but I want to I continue to look at uh, instructions and baptism. We're going to get into the laying on of hands eventually. But I want to look at another uh, facet of baptism. Now, we've talked about how there, in Scripture there are numerous baptisms. There's the baptism of John, a baptism in repentance, which is distinct from Christian baptism that we see in Romans chapter 6. And then we see the baptism in the Spirit that we talked about last week. And then there's a baptism of fire. And that's what I want to look at this morning a baptism of fire that Luke talks about here in this passage. There's also uh, that there's talk of a baptism of suffering that Jesus talked about. And uh, that's, that's more of a symbolic baptism, but it's a very real experience that we might look at some other time. But I want to look at this baptism of fire because we need to understand what this is. If we're looking at instructions in baptisms, plural, we need to understand this. And it is very much so tied into the baptism in water and a baptism in the Spirit. Uh, that's why when we look at this, well, let's look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, this is John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to, bur- uh, to gather the wheat into his barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so in this passage, John compares and contrasts his baptism with that which Jesus is going to do. So John baptized in water into repentance. He said, the one coming after me is going to baptize in the Spirit and in fire. So last week we baptized, I think, 31 people. A bunch of people were baptized in the Spirit. But we need to understand that connected to a baptism in the Spirit is a baptism in fire. It's a package deal. And if we don't understand that, then we can be puzzled when the baptism of fire arrives. Now, most of us, as Pentecostals, we talk about the fire of God, and we love that, when the fire of God's going to fall, I love the fire. But in this context, the fire first comes to purify before it comes to empower. And so when it says, He has a baptism of fire. John goes on to say his winnowing fork is already in his hands. And I want to remind you this morning that I felt led of the Lord to preach on this. It just feels good. Uh, I felt led of the Lord to preach on this this morning. And somebody came up to me and said, the Lord told me he's going to get his winnowing fork and he is going to clean his house. It's really what it's talking about. So the idea is this, that in, in this, this was an agricultural society that John was speaking to. And the idea was that when they would harvest, they would harvest in their fields and they would find the highest place within the harvest fields. And they would take a portion of that and they would put a clay base and they would tamp it down real good so they had what was known as a threshing floor. So it was a flat surface that was very hard. And when they would harvest, they would immediately gather the harvest, the grain that they had already cut, and they would throw it on this floor, this hard uh, clay floor, and then what they would do is they would crush the grain. They would take what was known as a threshing wheel, and it really looked like a, I'm going to date myself, a Fred Flintstone car. Remember those? He'd have his little, you know, he only had three toes, and that's because he had to use his toes as brakes. He'd lose a couple, but he'd, he would have this big uh, stone wheel and they would, that, that was their cars. And it was very similar that they'd have these stone wheels that they would roll over the freshly harvested grain and it would break the husk. Because the grain itself was protected by this external husk that now needed to be broke to get at that which is usable. And you couldn't eat the husk. Now that husk, you can, you can feed it to livestock, but it's not made for human consumption. So the idea is that to get at that which is usable, that which was once protecting it, now becomes a hindrance to it becoming used for what it was designed for, to be edible, to nourish somebody. And so they would have to crush it, and then they would take a a winnowing fork, and this is why it would be in the high place in the, the, the field. They would take the freshly crushed grain, and they would continue to throw it up in the wind, and when the wind would catch it, the, the husk itself, the chaff, was of lighter weight than the grain because the grain was, it had substance, it was weighty. It was that which was usable would fall back to the ground and the wind would catch that which was not usable and blow it away. And most farmers were satisfied to stop there, to just separate that which is usable 
from that which is not. But in this passage, John uses some very vivid language about what Jesus was going to do. He wasn't satisfied just to separate it. It says he would burn it up with unquenchable fire. And the context of this is when John says, what I do with water, the one coming after me will do with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he goes on to explain that the purpose of that fire was to burn up that which is not usable in our life. The very things that once protected us and the things from the, you know, around the things that God wanted to do now must be broken off so you could get at the grain. And like I said, most farmers were content, just have it blown away and the chaff can just blow and it'll decompose, but not Jesus. He wanted to burn it up, not just with fire, but with unquenchable fire. That's some vivid language. And it speaks of the zeal of the Lord to get at that which is usable in our life and to remove all hindrance. Now, there's a corporate application to this. There is a, uh, an overarching macro application uh, in all of human history. Jesus comes in, he harvests souls, and those that will surrender will be used of him, and those that don't will be consumed with unquenchable fire. Speaking of eternal flame and hell. And there is a very real hell. But there's also an individual application, and it's the one I'm more interested in this morning. That whenever there's a fresh harvest of the Spirit in our life, it's going to be followed by the fire. And I feel it's very important for us to cover this in light of last week's service. There were a lot of people baptized in the Spirit, a lot of people baptized in water, people that were touched. Uh, I was deeply touched by what I said. I was just, it was a beautiful service, a beautiful morning. But often what happens is God does something in our life and it's quickly followed by a wilderness experience where he's going after those things that are hindrances in our life. And if we don't understand that, what ends up happening is we doubt what our experience because it seems to be contradicted by what we're now experiencing. Does that make sense? And so when, when it's speaking here, it says that Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. God will always seize a harvest very quickly. If God's doing something fresh in your life, he's going to get it on the winnowing floor. There's going to be a crushing. There's going to be a separation. He's going to blow it, and he's going to burn it up. And we need to be aware of that. And what follows in, in Luke, it's interesting, he then talks about the genealogy of Jesus. And then what's the very next thing? Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, or returned from his baptism in water, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted of the devil. And I would propose to you that what is going on in chapter 4 is Jesus' experience of the baptism of fire. He has gone down in the water. He came up. The Spirit came upon him, and then he was led by the same Spirit that just filled him into the wilderness to establish what he heard in the river. We want to be aware of the ways of God. How does God operate? David and Moses both cried out, Lord, show me your ways. 
If we know how God operates, if we know the patterns of heaven, the templates of heaven, the ways that God works, the principles by which he operates, then we can cooperate with him as he operates. But if we're ignorant, Scripture says that we perish because of a lack of knowledge. If we're ignorant of the ways of God, what happens is, is we begin to, we think that what happened previously in the impartation, in the experience, must not have been real or we wouldn't be going through what we're going through. When in actuality, that is God's plan. God brings us into the wilderness to establish in the wilderness what he spoke to us in the river. If you look at the temptation here in chapter 4, the very first thing the enemy says is, if you are the Son of God. The very thing he heard in that glorious experience, the heavens opened, the, 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 the Spirit descended, the Father spoke to him, you are my Son. And the very thing, first thing he hears from the enemy in the wilderness, if you're really the Son. See, the enemy is always out to get you to doubt what God has already done in your life. Gets you to doubt in the wilderness what he spoke to you in the river. And here's the thing. This wilderness was designed for that very reason. The wilderness is anything but an open heaven. It's the exact opposite. In fact, in biblical times, their idea of the wilderness was it was the place where evil spirits dwelt. It was a place of deprivation and, and where the enemy dwelt. And that's why when they'd go out into the wilderness, it was a time of great testing. And Jesus was distinctly led by the Spirit that filled him into the wilderness, into this, this symbolism to be tested of the enemy so that God could establish what he gave him. Several times this week, I've had people reach out to me and share with me that God was dealing with them about things in their life this week. Telling them that they, there were some things he wanted them to give up or some opportunities that would have been very good opportunities and, you know, from the natural. And the Lord said, don't do it. I want you to back away from that. And there was just such a brokenness in these people. And it really, it really challenged my heart and ministered to my heart and encouraged me because I've seen this happen before. I remember back, uh, I've been the pastor here, I think, since 2002. You would think I'd know. I'm a guy. It's like an anniversary. It's vaguely around that time. And uh, so in 2002, it was about six months in, we had a, a, a move of the Spirit on a Sunday morning. And what really stood out to me was that for the next couple of weeks, I kept getting phone calls. And people would come and see me and say, Pastor, I... God's dealing with me about this. God, Pastor, I just need to confess this. Pastor, this is going on in my life. There were people that came to me that wanted to confess things they did in high school 30 years earlier. They just felt the need to get it off their chest. And I recognized this was, this was evidence that God was really moving. It wasn't just some little, it wasn't just a good service, that God was beginning a deep work of the Spirit. Because that encounter revealed some things in their heart and all of a sudden God was dealing at a deep level. That's what the winnowing fork is for. And with the baptism in the Spirit comes a baptism of fire. And the fire of God which we can release on others in power to see the power of God manifest first comes to the shores of our own heart as purity. God comes to begin to deal with us. 
And the Spirit will always lead us into the wilderness where there's deprivation, where there's, where there's not the feelings, the good, all that we experience in a service. I'm telling you, when God does something fresh in your heart, when he's harvested something, he's going to get you on the threshing floor. There's going to be a fresh breaking. There's going to be the wind begins to blow. He's going to take his, his threshing fork and toss it to the wind so that he can separate that which is usable from that which is not. And that which is not usable, he wants to burn up with unquenchable fire. And if we don't submit to that, or if we don't understand the ways of God, we can actually begin to doubt what happened in the river. We can think, well, that must not have been real because I'm, I'm in the fire right now and all this is going on. When in actuality, that is the proof that what's going on is real. And we need to understand this. Anybody ever seen The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? You ever seen that? I love that movie. It's overly dramatic, I know. But I love that. And there's this the scene where Moses goes out into the wilderness and this poetic phrase, it says, and this deep voice, and Moses was led into the wilderness where prophets of God are born. And it has some other uh, eloquent language, but I loved how it said, in the wilderness where prophets of God are born. There are always wilderness experiences in our life, and they are necessary for us to become what God wants us to be. They're places of testing. And if you never have that, you're going to remain an infant. I was sharing with the first service in 2008. We had a tremendous move of God, and it went on for the, the presence was very heavy for about nine months. And after about nine months, it began to lift. And I, I began to panic. And I, I began to cry out to God. I said, God, man, if I mess this up, I'll resign tomorrow. You get a guy in here to fix this thing. What have I done? Have I grieved you? And I was just brokenhearted. I mean, the presence of God was so thick. There were just healings would just break out. People that didn't know the Lord would walk in and be instantly healed. Salvations. It was glorious. And all of a sudden, that lifted. And I'm like, Lord, What's going on? And the Lord spoke to me, and this is what he told me. And in fact, he had given me a prophetic word at the end of 2007, at the beginning of 2008, right in that time. And I had read it and threw it on my hard drive and forgot about it because it was such a weird word. And this is what the word was. I'm sending revival to Heartland. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and it will be soon. But then I will add to it the wilderness and the theology that comes from when God is not felt. And I read that and thought, ah, I don't want that. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks, not interested. Save and just forgot about it. A couple of years later, it was a year and a half later, I was up in the balcony. And I was, I was broken hearted over the lifting of God's presence. It was still, I didn't feel a release to resign I didn't want to resign, but I was like, Lord, if you need me to, I'll get out of the way. And I was up in the balcony searching for a document, and boom, up came that prophecy, and I was stunned because I had been preaching on the wilderness for six months, never realizing that God had already told me before the move of God what he was going to do. And it so comforted and strengthened my heart to realize that this was God's intention and this is what the Lord told me. He said, I am going to break Heartland of hyper-environmentalism. 
And I knew exactly what he meant. What he was saying is, I'm going to raise up a people that can release the power of God in the most barren places. They can go into the wilderness where nothing's moving and release the power of God. They don't need the accoutrements of good worship and lighting and soft chairs and air conditioning to release the power of God. Because they carry it inside, they don't have to have it environmentally. Matter of fact, they create it environmentally. They're the catalyst to create that. But in order for that to happen, we have to be weaned from the environmental. And so what has to happen is God will touch you, he will minister to you, he'll touch your heart, and then he'll take you into a wilderness time, like, and then you're like, what in the world has happened? Was that even real? I thought I heard you say, I am your son in whom you're well pleased. Now all I hear is if you're really the son, command a miracle, turn the stone into bread, manufacture ministry to validate your identity. The power of God and ministry was never meant to be a self-validation mechanism. We've got to walk in faith and know who we are. And the only way that happens is that God gives us those kisses, those encounters, those words, those good things, and then he takes us out into the wilderness where all we hear are crickets. And this is the way of heaven. And it's a good thing. And so we see with Jesus, Jesus is led into the wilderness and he's tempted of the enemy. Now, temptation is essential, it's, a, it's required for you to get where you need to go. You say, well, what Jesus told us to pray, lead me not into temptation. I'm not talking about the temptation that's an enticement for evil. I'm talking about where you have to choose the only way for you to really grow up and, and mature in God is you have to have choices. And that was part of the system even before the fall. Way back in the garden, what did God do? He put Adam and Eve in paradise and then put a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was attractive. It looked good, like it would taste good. It was alluring. And God put it right smack dab in the middle of the garden. He didn't put it over on the side with razor wire around it. He didn't have angels guarding it. Didn't have keep out signs or pit bulls. He put it right in the middle and he said, don't eat this. Because the only way for us to grow up is for us to have choices and to make the right choice. And when we make the right choice, we grow in our character. And it all comes down to the, the issue of do we really trust him? And so temptation in that sense is a requirement. God will lead you into situations where you have to choose. And we think of temptation as a choice between good and evil. And the vast majority of time for the believer, temptation is more about good and God. Something that appears like, this, this is a great idea. I talked to someone this week. They had a lucrative opportunity, and the Lord said, no, don't do it. And man, they wrestled with it. But on the other side, they, they let it go, and they said they had such peace, and I could hear it in their voice. And they said, I still don't understand. They don't, they don't understand exactly why God was saying it, but they know the Lord told them no. But tell you, that, those, those choices are so valuable because it grows us in God. And when we make the wrong choices, 
we are simply sentenced to take another lap around Mount Sinai till we learn the lesson. We have to keep taking that lap until we conquer that issue and God takes us on to other things. Because God is after those things in our life that protect us and that we choose our own self-preservation over God's direction, over his leading. And so God will lead us into the wilderness. And it is the way of heaven. Baptism in the Spirit is followed by a baptism of fire. And the fire we want to release on others first has to come and purify us. And so Jesus was led into the wilderness and the enemy said to him, if you're really the son, the first attack was an attack on his identity. Until you're established in your identity and you know who you are, that's where the enemy will always attack you. Once Jesus passed that test, he said, the enemy said, make for yourself some bread out of this stone. You know, validate your own identity. And he said, no, man does not live by bread alone. This is after, I love that the Bible's a, the master of understatement. And for 40 days he did not eat, and after that he was hungry. Uh-huh. And that's when the enemy came to him and said, make bread out of this stone. And he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. He was directly quoting a verse out of Deuteronomy. And in that passage, it says, it, the context is God leading the children of Israel into the wilderness to make them hungry so that they would know that man does not live by bread alone. What happens when God leads you into a wilderness, so to speak, where the hunger of your soul begins to be aroused? And it's like there's, these things are withheld from you. What's, what goes on in your life? See, what Jesus passed the test because he said, I would rather hear the word of God than satisfy my physical hunger. I tell you, after 40 days, you need food, okay? If you haven't eaten anything, you're just drinking water after 40 days. Now, you might think you will die before then, but if you're healthy, you'll live. But not much longer. You've got to start consuming food. 40 days, you're getting to a limit without a miracle. And that's when the enemy came to Jesus. But Jesus, there was this hunger, God, I need to hear from you. I'm dependent on you. I'm hungry to hear your voice. And he passed the test. So what's the very next thing? We were talking about this temptation Wednesday night. It's so interesting. The enemy comes to Jesus. It says he showed him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment. So Jesus goes from an encounter with his father and with the spirit to now an encounter with the enemy. And this supernatural encounter where he sees all the kingdoms of the world with all its riches and all its glory in a moment and the enemy says, I will give you all this if you will worship me. And Jesus sees it all and he, he says, he, again, he answers with the verse, he said, you know, you're, you're not, we're not to worship any but the Lord our God. Now, it's fascinating to me, Jesus doesn't challenge the enemy and say, because the enemy said, I have been given authority, I, I have been given this right to give this to whomever I will. And Jesus doesn't refute that. He doesn't say, no, you haven't. I believe that there are many powerful people across the globe and in entertainment, politics, and so forth that have entered into a deal like that. But the one who has saved us passed the test. And here's the interesting thing. 
that Jesus, when he was tempted in that way, it was actually an indication of his destiny. And temptation often is. The reason temptation is tempting is because it's usually touching on something that's innate in us and we're called to it. And so when the enemy said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you'll but bow to me, what he was offering him is his destiny through a shortcut. What does Jesus have today? He's been crowned Lord of all. And all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. It was actually his destiny being offered to him with a shortcut. And that's how the enemy operates. He'll offer you a shortcut. And here's the danger with the shortcut. If you take the shortcut, even if you embrace what God has promised you, you're not qualified to steward it because the shortcut robbed you of the character it's going to need, that the, the process builds the character in you so you can steward it well. So what the enemy will do, God has you at point A, he wants to take you to point B, and there's a process to you getting there. And suffering is always involved. It says of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering, and he had to be made perfect. He wasn't born perfect. I'm not saying he was born sinful. He was innocent, but he wasn't perfect. He was never sinful, but he had an opportunity to choose to be so. And that choice of choosing right began to develop him, and he had to learn obedience by the things he suffered. So how does this work? Well, you're on the path to God's will, and as you're on that journey, God's revealing his will to you, and much of it is veiled to us. We're just, we're, we're, we're getting one step at a time, trying to hear his voice, trying to stay on the path. And the enemy introduces a temptation. Suffering is always involved. There's a reason it says that Jesus learned suffering from the, or obedience from the things he suffered. Suffering can be defined as having something you don't want or not having something you do want. So temptation always either has pain or pleasure as an enticement, okay? So I'm on the path and I, may, I have something I don't want. I've got this painful situation, and the enemy whispers in my ear and says, if you'll just get off of God's path momentarily, I will relieve you of that suffering. And we've got to resist that. Or we don't have something we want. If you'll just step off the path, I will satisfy that desire for pleasure momentarily. And we can't afford to begin to play mental head games with that because you will talk yourself into compromise. There has to be this agreement with God. We have to understand what's going on. And often God will call you to give up early on what he wants to give you later on. God will enable you to be offered something that is your destiny, but you've got to say, I let it go. Lord, I'd rather have you, even then the fulfillment of your destiny. That's exactly what happened with Abraham. God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he has this kid in his old age, Isaac, and, and it's, it's the apple of his eye. And then one day God says, I want you to sacrifice your promise. 
out of obedience to me, I want you to kiss the avenue to your destiny goodbye. And if you never enter into what I've promised you, I want you to be satisfied with just having me rather than the future, the promise, the destiny, all those things. And there's always that dynamic in our life. The danger is that the promise of God can become more important than God himself. The prophecy and fulfilling the words over your life can actually supersede your loyalty to God himself. And so we've got to put that stuff on the altar. And so we're on this path and the enemy entices us and if we make the right decisions, we grow in character and we can actually steward the very thing that we once said no to. If God can trust you to say no, he can entrust you later on to say yes. And a lot of people enter prematurely into their destiny, to their calling, to the promises. And at best, they end up with a... a uh, Partial fulfillment, an immature expression of what God has for them. And the, not every opportunity is from God. Not even every opportunity to fulfill the call on your life is from God. Sometimes it's the enticement of the enemy to get you off track. To keep you from the fullness and so this, that's why we've got to have this personal, face-to-face, intimate relationship with God so that we can hear what he's saying. And when God says no, even though it tears our heart out and we, we cry hot tears, we say, God, I trust you with whatever your promise is. Lord, if, if, I'm, I'll put this thing on the altar and you're going to have to raise it again to fulfill your promise, but I'm going to trust you. And those are the people that God can entrust later on. It's the purpose of temptation. And so Jesus goes down in the water, heavens open, dove descends in bodily form. That's a, an amazing encounter. The audible voice of the Lord, and immediately he's driven into the wilderness by the same spirit that came on him to be tested. And the enemy comes to him and begins to try to pull him into his destiny prematurely. The last temptation, let me turn there, the last temptation, he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, verse 10, for it is written, he will command, now the, now the devil's is uh, quoting scripture. You ever had the devil quote scripture to you? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Test the Lord. Make God prove himself. You've proven yourself. Now make God prove himself. What does Jesus answer? It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed him until an opportune time. And then listen to what it says, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Listen to verse 1, chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, his baptism, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. Then verse 14 
Now he returns not from the Jordan baptism, but from the wilderness temptation. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. There is no coincidences in the, ver- the, the Word of God. God is very specific on the words he chooses. So he, he comes out of this great encounter full of the Spirit, goes into the wilderness, tested of the enemy, and comes out the other side. Now he's walking in the power of the Spirit. I would propose to you that the explanation for the powerlessness on many believers' lives is not that they've never been filled, but they never endured the testing after the fact. And they let go in the wilderness over what God spoke to them in the river. And we've got a hold to those things because those are the people that God can entrust. I believe that was a word from the Lord that someone brought me this morning. I don't think, I asked them, I said, do you know what I'm preaching on this morning? They said, no. And I said, that very verse. And I said, in fact, I brought a winnowing fork. And they kind of looked, they said, oh, I got goosebumps. The Lord wants to do a fresh harvest in all of our lives. A fresh harvest means that there are things that God wants to use in our life that he's not yet had access to. During those times, there's crushing. During those times, the wind has to blow. And a lot of times we try to avoid that, but what we need to do is put our face to the wind and allow the Lord to blow through us, to deal with us. And then allow the fire of God to burn up those things in our life. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. need to be careful with this. I'm going to hurt someone. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing. But Lord, we don't want to rush things. Lord, we don't want to step prematurely into the next step, skipping the wilderness and all that you want to do in our lives. Lord, I ask that you would deal with us. And Lord, those areas of our life that we protect, consciously or unconsciously, Lord, I ask that you'd go after them. Yesterday morning I was here with a few people, a small prayer meeting, and uh, someone brought up this very verse again, and they quoted it to me, and they said, I feel like the Lord, this is what the Lord's doing. I said, do you know what I'm preaching on tomorrow? And they said, no. I didn't think they did, but you just never know around here. And uh, I said that very thing. And they were talking about how in a harvest, in agricultural societies, not so much in our own because we have hybrid seeds, but there was that which was harvested and consumed for bread and fed others, and there was some that was set aside for planting. And I just had this sense when they said that, that we're going to go into a a season where the Lord's going to begin to harvest people's lives. John Lemmox was there and he said, yeah, when I was a kid, he said, we'd harvest oats. And he said, we always kept about 10% aside for replanting. I thought, isn't that interesting? 
keep a tithe aside. And what I felt like the Lord was saying to me in that was that there's going to be some fresh movings of the Spirit. We're going to feel in our own lives God harvesting areas that we, they've been unfruitful. They kind of the side things in our life, but God's going to begin to move and begin to harvest some things in our life. He's going to harvest people. And some are going to be used to plant other places across the earth. I believe God's going to begin to blow people to the nations of the earth. We've seen people go to the mission field, but we're going to see more of that in the days to come. It's going to happen locally, but it's going to happen internationally. So the Lord's looking for a surrender from all of us. We've got one life to live, and then we'll give an account. I think it's incumbent upon us in light of what's coming, to just surrender afresh and say, Lord, have your way with me. I'm going to ask you to put your hands out in front of you. And in your own way, just surrender afresh. As you're doing that, just begin to have a private conversation with the Lord. I want to read you something. Laura Lemick sent me this this week, and I just thought it was so apropos in light of what the Lord's been speaking to me. This is by John Wimber. Some of you know who John was. He was a general in the faith. From time to time, the Lord challenges us to make new commitments. He lets us know what he wants us to give up. He lets us know that he wants us to give up something we are successful at and begin doing something we don't yet know anything about. Maybe something we don't like. The economy of the kingdom of God is quite simple. Every new step in the kingdom costs us everything we have gained to date. Every new stop may cost us all the reputation and security we have accumulated to that point. The disciple is always ready to take the next step. If there is anything that characterizes characterizes Christian maturity, it is the willingness to become a beginner again for Jesus Christ. It is the willingness to put our hand in his hand and say, I'm scared half to death, but I'll go with you, Lord. I'll risk everything to go with you because you are the pearl of great price. So I want us just to quietly stand before the Lord. I want you to ask yourself, are you willing, are you all in? Are you willing to push everything in the middle of the table and say, Lord, it's yours? If you're not, you need to ask the Lord to grace you to get there. If you are, get ready for an adventure. <laughs> Father, we thank you. Lord, we don't want to live our life in safety and security. Lord, we want our lives to burn for you. At the end of the age, we don't want to cry hot tears of regret. We want to know we left it all on the field. Hallelujah.
Lord, we ask, God, that you would send your fire. Begin to burn in us, Lord. Burn up the chaff, that which is not usable, that which keeps you from accessing what is usable. Burn it up, Lord, with unquenchable fire. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.